I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you very much. And I'm delighted to be here today to talk about this really brilliant book. Um, and I think we'll go straight in and I will ask you how it came about. How, how long did it take? How were you appointed? Well, so I had done the book that you just mentioned, Why This World, about Clarissa Spector, which was something I started when I was in my mid-20s because I had no idea what a biography was and I thought it would be sort of fun and I thought, why not? And um, so I plunged into that and then I published it and thought that was great because that was my, it was about her, you know, rather than biography as a genre. But after you do that, you do learn a lot and you sort of become identified as a biographer. So um, I was asked by a group, including Susan's son and her agent and her editor, uh, in New York because they had liked that book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I thought, wow, I mean, there's nobody as fascinating as Susan Sontag. There's nobody who was in as many realms and who is as controversial and who is as interesting as Susan Sontag. So, I mean, once I was asked, it was really hard to say no. And, um, so, and it took me seven years. I traveled all over the world from Hawaii uh, where I'd actually never been, to uh, Bosnia, where I interviewed the survivors of the play that she put on in the 90s under conditions of complete mayhem and death and war. Um, I met all sorts of people who are now dead, which is sort of weird when you're a biographer and you're interviewing older people. Um, I looked at my acknowledgments yesterday and I saw how many people I had gotten to know, and maybe I was the last person to interview them you know, or to speak to them in that way. Um, so from Sweden to Rome. And to where's the main archive? The main archive is in Los Angeles. And um, the great thing about being asked to do it is that I was allowed to see not only the public part of the archive, but the private part of the archive, which is going to be off limits for another however many decades. And, um, do you know how many? So it's different for some of them. Some of the medical records are going to be released in 20 years and, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of fun to go into the private archives because you feel like you're like Sherlock Holmes or something. It's kind of and then private adventurous. Lessons. Yeah, private journals, private... Um, right. um, and all the journals except for the selected? No, it's weird. The funny thing is you go in there and you find like her laundry list or something completely trivial and you think like, why is this in there? And then the more you look at it, you think, oh, it's that one word, you know, and you think about it like six months later, you're like, it looks so anodyne. And she decided what went in the pen. She decided what went in there. Um, but she also had made an allowance for, for a biographer and, um, and including her computer. You know, that's the one of the creepiest things about going onto somebody's computer. There's something sort of, if you've done historical research or you've done a PhD, you're you're okay going through archives. I mean, that's not so strange. But what is strange is going through someone's computer, it feels creepier. Um, it feels strange. And along with that comes this responsibility to try to use that access and that intimacy respectfully. Um, because it's strange to look in someone else's computer, even though she sold that computer to them with the knowledge that it would be used for research eventually. Um, 
And so there are hundred. There's like a hundred volumes of hundred volumes of journals yeah. and letters. Do most of the letters to lovers survive? To her mother? Do they? She didn't. Yeah, some of them. Um, I found a lot of the letters actually in Maui in Hawaii at her sister's house. Um, I was sitting next to her sister this far away when her phone rang and she picked up her phone and they said, Mrs. Cohen, your, your, you know, your husband has died in the middle of my interview with her. The first time I met her and suddenly you just see, I was actually taking a picture of her because she was, the light was nice and she was this, she's, she's coming to my party next week in New York. She became a great friend of mine, um, Judith. And, um, because it's good for intimacy. That's the thing. (laughs) Yeah. But that's what's so weird about it. You don't really, you're, you're going there to the stranger and you're trying to be respectful and you're trying to be everybody's like Jewish grandson, you know, and, um, this like older lady and she is nervous and you're nervous. And suddenly that happens. And she's this old woman who's crying and you, and she doesn't know what to do. And the people are calling from the hospital and the people are calling from the insurance and the people are calling from the whatever. And, and in the midst of that, you find the cash. I just start picking up and, the phone. Read them. I no. just pick up the phone and I, I'm like, just, just sit down. It's going to be okay. We're going to take care of this. And then you start. And there's a question about like, what do we do? We cremate him in Honolulu or do we have him flown back the bot? You know, it's just not what you're prepared for. And then you become close to this person. You understand who this person is in a way that if you didn't have these kind of dramatic things happen. And over seven years, a lot happens. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's not bloodless, this mm. kind of work. It's very intimate and very uh, intense. Um, and it's a way to get to know people in all sorts of different ways, and especially Susan Sontag. And just one more archive question. Uh-huh. Um, is there much? Questions. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> um, is there much So in the biography? Um, the, the kind of unpublished piece that struck me most was that amazing essay on Sartre that yes. um, hadn't gone through, which I think you did a really brilliant kind of biographical reading of, and the way that it was autobiographical. So, but was there much else apart from that that she didn't publish that was sort of illuminating? Yeah, she wrote a lot. She wrote actually a lot of fiction that she didn't publish, and she wrote a lot of stories that maybe she did publish, but then she didn't collect later. Um, and there was there's a hundred volumes of journals, and they were published. And it's very interesting to see what gets published and what doesn't get published. So even though you have, if you're sitting in this archive, which is this very grand room with all these Venetian editions from the late 15th century surrounding you, you feel sort of heavily important. And you're looking at the journal in the book, and you're looking at the actual thing, and you see these very tiny little revisions. And um, that's the part that you notice and you think, huh, wonder why that got yeah. left out. Um, but there, you know, there, there's, she wrote a lot and the Sartre story that she's mentioning um, is something, it's one of the few things that ever got rejected by the New York Review of Books. It's this very long piece that she wrote in the late seventies about how Sartre had blown his mind by amphetamine use. And this is one of the things I talk about. I mean, there's a lot of things in the book I talk about have changed. So what is a woman? This is something that we think we know what a woman is. But actually, if you go back 50 years, um, you see that what being a woman meant socially, politically, legally, in the family, in the academy, totally different. Um, sickness, cancer, um, homosexuality, America communism and all these lists. But one of the things that was totally different was drugs. Um, I don't think people necessarily remember. I didn't know, although I thought about it. And then I thought, okay, that really until the 70s, hard drugs were not available in the United States. Um, They started being exported. Heroin and and cocaine particularly started being exported by these great cartels in Asia and Latin America. And and then with all the consequences that we saw and, and still see. But one of the things that nobody knew was bad was speed. Mm. Everybody took speed. And Susan would said to someone once, she's like, oh, like to finish my essays, it's no problem. I just stay up for two weeks. <laughs> and that was like a normal thing to say. And I thought, I'm kind of jealous, you know, because as a writer, you kind of wish you had those extra hours. Not really. Not really. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you understand it. It's like, oh, God, I had to turn that in on Tuesday. Like, how am I going to do this? Um, well, so you just take amphetamines. And, but she writes this piece about how Sartre had destroyed his mind with amphetamines. But she never says 
that she herself is a compulsive amphetamine user. And she does that a lot. Um, that, that instance, it, 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 it doesn't work, you know, and the piece doesn't get published. But in a lot of places, her interest in suppressing her own story becomes a fascinating part of the story. So when she gets cancer, she writes this incredible book called Illness's Metaphor. She's 42, which is how old I am now. And I just, I feel how that must have felt to get a stage four cancer diagnosis and be told you're going to die. You know, you're just kind of getting started when you're 42. You know, you feel like, and then all of a sudden the, the guillotine falls or looks like it's going to fall. And um, she then writes this famous book, Illnesses Metaphor, uh, never, ever, ever says that she has cancer herself. Um, and this was really criticized, um, including by feminists who thought that the thing that, that women needed to do in order to take ownership of their own stories was to shift from abstraction and allegory to telling their own stories. Mm. So there's a famous quote from Adrienne Rich. She says, not the body, but my body. And then after that, of course, you have this explosion of memoirs and everybody oversharing on Facebook. And we forgot that people didn't, that wasn't something people liked to do. And it wasn't that's something people thought was even proper to do. I mean, it's interesting because when she first made that kind of extraordinary statement where she says, I'm going to be a writer, like, yeah. having just discovered orgasms after her marriage, um, <laughs> she says the only kind of writer I can be is is the personal writer who exposes himself, as she puts it. But then she doesn't sort of... Well, the himself is the whole point of that sentence to me. You know, she says, the only kind of writer I can be is one who exposes himself. And you think, how are we going to balance that out? Um, and it becomes really fascinating because what I think is so interesting about Susan is that, I mean, as a writer, she's as a person, she's fascinating, but as a writer... She's always not saying something that you can feel is there. So Illness is Metaphor, it's this powerful, powerful, urgent, urgent book. You know it's urgent. You feel it. But she doesn't take you down the hall to the chemo Yeah, but session. maybe we have to kind of allow her that, that the power comes from, the lack of it. That the I like it. Right. I prefer it, I have to say. Um, and I think that what makes the book interesting, I hope, is that you see the work and then you see the source of the work and it i think it enhances it for me it enhanced the understanding of reading books like that and the other great example is on photography which is this meditation on being photographed and being looked at and also looking um there's a famous show in american history in american photographic history which was after dion arbus died in 1971 or 72 Anyway, she was also 41 or something, and she slit her wrists, and she took a bunch of barbiturates, and she died. And then she became very famous, partially um, because this archive comes up with this incredible amount of photographs of freaks. And um, Susan started going to the Museum of Modern Art in New York and seeing not only the pictures of the freaks, but what she was really interested in was the people looking at the freaks. So she starts going back and back and just listening to people talking about it and seeing what they're saying. And she identifies with the people going to the museum. Um, the thing is about exposing people who are not in control of their own images, often children or um, people who have mental illnesses or of some kind, is that they're not actually consenting to being on that wall. They're not actually able even to give consent. Um, and the thing about having somebody on a wall in a little square frame is that they can't look back at you. You know, you can stare at them and kind of like look at them as much as you want. And they can't, not only do they not consent to the photographs, they didn't actually consent to being displayed in this way. And, and one of the great things I found in the archives at the Museum of Modern Art, which is in the book, is a photograph of the gallery, um, which nobody I don't think had ever found. I, I'm just super proud of this. So allow me a moment. Um, because people, there's a lot of debate in photography circles about Arbus, and is it really displaying people in this way? Or is that just a malevolent critical interpretation? On the wall, if, I mean, you, you can see it's in, the, it's in the second part of the photos. Um, there's all these people in this gallery, photographs, and then above them, on the wall, is the word losers. <laughs> so it's sort of, think, you think, well, 
yeah, I mean, that is how these people were being put on display and commodified. And at the same time, Susan identifies with these people who are looking at this, these worlds of these weird or disabled people. But she also identifies with um, the freaks themselves because mm. she herself felt like she was a freak mm. because she was a lesbian and because she was, um, for all sorts of reasons, she had always felt like an outsider. Mm. So you have this you, double you really bring identification. Out that sort of inside-outside theme really strongly yeah. in, in the book. Um, just, I mean, I, it's sort of hard to know how much to talk about Sontag and how much to talk about the book, but how much do you think your sense of Sontag is, is kind of informed, is a generational perspective? How much do you want to reinterpret her? For, for well, I love that question because... Um, I, well, so I'll be 43 on Saturday. Happy birthday. Um, I am 43 young, years younger than Susan. So I'm sort of halfway. And I find that like when, when somebody dies, this happens a lot. Um, well, you know, you've written about Doris Lessing, like people, the media world, the, the world of our attention moves so quickly that people get forgotten really quickly. So in New York earlier this year, we had the gala at the Met Metropolitan Museum um, that was celebrating her famous essay notes on camp. And then there was this little moment of sort of everybody Googling what that was. And then she became Susan Sontag, author of notes on camp period. And that was actually all a lot of people knew about her who are, you know, our age and younger. They know the famous name. We hope. Um, they know that she had this hair with the white stripe. Um, they know that she was this intellectual and actually, like, in my experience, people don't know much more than that. They might have read notes on camp. They might have read on photography. But my goal is really to help her body of work and her legacy go forward into a new generation. Because I think that the relevance of Sontag has only gotten more and more as we live in this world of where really I think learning how to look and see and read and understand what we read and what we see in our world of fake news and, and all this stuff that we're being bombarded by, I think that is more important than it ever has been. I think it was always important. But do you think you've written a different book yeah. from one that someone, a generation older, would have written? And, and yeah. How, how is your, like, how? Yeah. how? Because, um, first of all, I'm a different person, so that's different. But I think that, like, I have to explain a lot that people right. wouldn't have to explain. And we now have the perspective. So we now know that not everybody thinks, just to shock everybody, not everybody thinks that America is a unilaterally positive force in the world, for example. Um, not everybody thinks that gay people are um, diseased perverts. Not everybody thinks that, um, that learning and, and reading is something that only should be available to a small elite. Um, not every... I mean, we were just talking about downstairs. Like, I come from a world where I can still remember where New York was um, shitty and cheap. And it wasn't somewhere anyone wanted to live. And I remember London, too, when it was like, the food was terrible. And it was, you came to see, like, the knights of the Crusades and stuff. And it was, it was just this old, falling apart city when I was a child. And then this, this tidal wave of money comes through. I mean, to, to say what New York was in the 70s is forgotten. So I like giving a bit of historical perspective and trying to show that the words that we use. Um, Do you think you found any of her views sort of generationally shocking? I mean, you mentioned the, her mm. sort of difficulty with homosexuality. You, I think you really talk about mm. well and the way that the kind of next generation found it quite shocking when she published AIDS and its metaphors. Yes. Without coming, did you sort of find that hard coming, coming from a younger generation, do you think? Um, yes and no, because, I mean, I'll say yes, I found it hard because, I mean, I'm gay myself and I know gay history and I think it's important just like I'm, you know, I think we should know feminist history. You know, we should know black history. We should know Jewish history. We should know that the, the, the things, the games that we've experienced were not easy and they're not something we should take for granted. So I've always felt very keenly on that. On the other hand, I also know that uh, gay people struggle in a way that I think any gay person will recognize her struggles. And you can judge them negatively in a certain way because she was famous. And um, during the crisis that AIDS created, um, the, the analysis that came out of the AIDS movement 
was ultimately, I think we would all agree, was the correct analysis, which was that you did have a duty to show your face and not be demonized and not be um, destroyed in the way that, you know, 40 million people and counting have died of this disease. Um, but I understand that, like, in a personal life, if you grow up with the kind of homophobia that she grew up with, it was people forget that until the 1990s in the United States, being homosexual was caused for having your children taken away from you. Um, 1990s. This is not the pyramids. You know, this was really recent. Um, and that happened to Susan. She was forced to exchange a book she had written um, for her child. I mean... So you a, think it's clear that she would have claimed authorship over the Freud book if I there hadn't so. been the custody battle? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a brutal thing. And she... Um, but it's also another generational thing, and that's why I think it's so interesting to talk about it, especially, I mean, in this case, with younger women. Older women, I, I don't know if you saw that piece in The Guardian that was like three months ago, maybe, about how she, had, um, she was the true author of this book. Yeah. Um, older women, a lot of the ones I interviewed, they all kind of called me and emailed me, and they were like, why is everybody so shocked by this? This happened to everybody. Everybody knows this. Like, why is everybody acting like this is such a revelation? You know, I know 10 people who had to do these kinds of things. And of course, they all wrote their husband's books. And, and um, the younger women, you know, that I saw on Twitter or on, you know, different things were absolutely shocked. They had no idea that that could happen. Yeah. But I mean, in a way, because of that former thing, like, I, yeah. you know, when she talked, I don't know if you've heard the Nightways interview where she talked no. about having written it and she said she did mm -hmm. it because they kind of promised each other they'd write one of each other's books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like she, if there hadn't been the custody battle, she would have definitely said, I want it to be published under, I think she would have liked more acknowledgement, but I think she sort of saw it as a joint. She told different stories about it. Right. Um, the archival evidence for me and the, the anecdotal evidence of people who were around that time was pretty clear that she, um, I mean, she was fighting for her life at that time. But you think she would have wanted like sole authorship on, on the Well, book? that's what she always claimed. Right. Um, I think, you know, when she was maybe in public, like in an interview, she wasn't, mm -hmm. she was maybe a bit mm -hmm. more careful about actually asserting that, but privately, um, her whole life, that was mm -hmm. a big issue for her. And really toward the end of her life, she was, I mean, I just spent seven years writing this book and I'm really proud of it and I, it's been really hard and it's really, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can't imagine how I would feel if somebody stole it. You know, like if, if I had to publish it under someone else's name in order to, mm. in order to, you know, I don't have children. But if you children, had based it on but, someone else's notes and if you had lived with that person talking all day, every day yeah. and... I mean, listen, I just I can just tell you it was really common. Yeah. Um, a lot of women who who wrote in to me and called me said, totally not surprising, happened all the time. You weren't in a position, even because mentally, you know, you ha it's not even so legal or, you know, it's something mentally you have to be able to stand up and have some hope of being believed. Because um, now, it, you know, it would be on the computer or something. But how do you prove it? Mm. And I think for me, the ultimate proof is not only that she claimed it, but also that it's obviously her voice. Yeah, I think, I think we've all agreed that she wrote it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I mean, I was interested back to the kind of question about AIDS and its metaphors and, mm. and her coming out. I liked in your biography the way that your kind of judgments were sort of clear and crisp and did come in. Um, like you do have a kind of political stance on her Vietnam essay, on, mm. on the AIDS essay. But do you think, how much did you sort of decide that from the outset that you were going to kind of bring in your judgments well because this is somebody who has been written about extensively over extensively since the early 1960s so that's 50 however i'm not great at 60 years almost Ooh, it's been a long time um and it never diminished there was always a lot of writing about it and i think that as a biographer what you bring to something is your judgment and your mm -hmm. ideas um there's so many other books about susan that people have written and will continue to write um so I have, and I also think that a biography of Susan Sontag that wasn't slightly polemical or slightly mm -hmm. um, controversial would it's not be a book it. about Susan Sontag. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. Yeah. Um, and I think your voice um, in that respect, I suppose, in, in kind of following in her tradition, feels like the voice of a critic as well as the voice of a biographer. 
Does that, yeah. do you feel like, did you feel like you were sort of writing it as a critic and? Yeah. And I think that's what's fun about it because as a critic, you're writing about a critic and you're, so it's a book about how judgments are formed and how they're, um, how they're, how they're arrived at and, and, and sometimes in very different contexts, either personally or, or, or historically. And when you look at her life, she liked a fight, you know, she enjoyed, um, you know, post, she was, she would always write back if somebody wrote her, you know, a letter to the New York review of books, she was right there answering it. And she, she enjoyed that kind of debate. And I think that it's healthy to have that kind of debate. Um, and I hope that, I think if you keep somebody alive in the way I'd love to help her, you know, stay part of the bloodstream of ideas. Um, it's not because you shut off that debate. It's because you keep it going. Mm. And it's interesting, I mean, the whole question of biography that I feel like she was writing in an era when criticism mattered more than biography. And we've kind of moved yeah. to a point at which biography sort of, we often lead on biography. Um, yeah. I don't know sort of how you feel about that and where, where do you think, what was her attitude towards biography? I mean, in a way, there's kind of quite a lot of implicit sort of Well, biography. I mean, sh- yeah. That's like a tough question. Way, sort of biographical. Sh- yes. Well, so a lot of people think biographies are great for other people more than for themselves because they don't really want it all sitting out on the pavement, but um, which of course one understands because it's personal. I mean, I think that if you're writing a biography and you're not writing about sex and career and finance and family, I mean, all the buttons that people that push, you know, that are the the most sensitive parts of people's lives. um, It's not interesting to read, but I think that, um, there was a moment in the 80s and 90s, I think, in academic criticism where people sort of decided that it wasn't, it didn't matter, that biographies didn't matter because the work was completely separate from the life. And what I think is fascinating about Sontag is that you have this incredibly rich work and intellectual life. And at the same time, you have this absolutely fascinating woman who did everything, who went everywhere, who slept with truly nearly everyone. Um, and, um, I mean, you know, from Robert Kennedy to Annie Leibovitz to Jasper Johns to, you know, just an incredible, um, I I mean, it's so funny that if you're a novelist, you wouldn't make her up because she's so larger than life. Um, one of the things I always thought was hilarious is she's in a movie theater in Berlin. She walks out of the movie theater and she smells tear gas and the Berlin wall has fallen. And you think if you're a novelist and you're writing about a woman who was everywhere and did everything and slept with everyone and wrote everything, you wouldn't include that because it would be so over the top. But it actually happened. You know, she's just one of those figures that managed to be there for every single event in um, political and social and cultural history and not just in America. So, I mean, I think I'd like her to be read about as this figure who is a fascinating writer and thinker, but also as someone who's just really interesting. I mean, people could not take their eyes off of her, Um, the haters and the lovers. And she had a lot of both. And so, but something about her kept people uh, provoked. And when you're talking now, I feel like, I mean, it's sort of always interesting to think about the biographer's kind of distance from their subject. Mm. And I feel like you're talking as someone who's kind of watching her over there being extraordinary rather than feeling like you're really up close and identified. Is that, would you say that's true? And do you think being a man writing a biography of a woman, how does that sort of come into it? Well, so I've written two biographies of women now. Um, I didn't think of it that way when I started. Like here I am bringing my masculinity to this discussion. <laughs> you know, I just was interested in these people. Um, but I do think that I don't think, I think it's a slight self-protection. So when I tell you about Judith, her sister, and the death of her husband occurring at this distance to me in real time, um, writing a biography is so personal, it's so intimate, that you do have to protect yourself to a certain degree because you want to feel what people are feeling and you want to know what they're thinking. At the same time, you're not their family. You know, and this person, it's also weird to remember, this person is actually not alive. <laughs> Sorry, to, you know, spoiler alert. Um, but, she, you know, she's not alive. And so 
if you are always thinking, like, what would she think about this? Or how would she react to this? Um, that piece by Leslie Jameson today, she said, I wonder what Susan would think about my review. Because, and I love that because I was like, well, of course, like, I'm thinking that the whole time. Like, I want her to, um, you know, even when I criticize her, I want her to understand why and maybe disagree, but still follow my thought. Um, but I think, yeah, you have to step back a little bit. You really do, because you inherit their enemies, you inherit their friends, um, both of whom can be equally intense. Um, and you're also trying to live your own life. So you think part of you know? what has made you choose female subjects is, is that it enables that distance? Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I didn't have a distance from her in a lot of ways. And I mean, the first subject I did um, was a Brazilian, for example. Um, Clarice was a Brazilian. Um, I'm not Brazilian. Susan is American. I'm American. You know, Susan's Jewish. I'm Jewish. Um, Susan's gay. I'm gay. I mean, you know, you can go. I think when you go down these lists of identities, mm -hmm. you really get to the real kernel of the matter, core of the matter, is um, can you empathize with this person? Mm -hmm. Because that's what she writes about time and time again, about how metaphor can distance people. You know, if you say, like, the word glass and the glass are two different things, the physical object and the word, um, there's always a kind of distance. Mm. And I think you try to bridge it through empathy and just trying to feel as much as you can about what her life was like. But I'm not her, you know. I mean, that's the kind of extraordinary thing about having those diaries. That in some ways, you know more yeah. about her than than anyone else. But in, in other ways, and probably more than she did, because I um, I was just looking. I was clean. My house was being painted uh, a few weeks ago, and so when that happens, you dig all the crap because you have to put it all in boxes and get it. And I found a bunch of journals from like ten years ago, um, and I had no memory of this stuff. I mean, I sort yeah. of knew who so and so was, but you know, you live forward. You know, you're thinking about now and tomorrow and the next day. You're not really thinking about like nine years ago when you went out to dinner with somebody, but you might have written down, down in your journal. So um, in certain ways... I guess that's particularly intense. I mean, I think in the biography, you bring out the theme of, of self-transformation very well and the way that she really decided that there were kind of definite moments at which she was going to try out a new persona Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, how conscious do you think she was of, of that? And how much do you think she remembered her previous sort of selves? I think she remembered them very well. I mean, so Susan comes from the provinces of the United States. Um, and she grows up gay and isolated. Her father's dead. Her mother's an alcoholic. She's off in the distance. Um, she comes from a place where there was very little intellectual models. Um, and so she didn't really have someone to model herself on, including her mother. Her mother was sitting in her room drinking vodka for most of her childhood. And um, so she was always fixated on role models in a certain way and different possibilities for herself. And of course, um, growing up as she eventually does in Los Angeles with a mother and a grandmother who are obsessed with Hollywood, she becomes focused on the great diva figures. And from the time she's really young, She's going to the movies and she's watching how to smoke. And there's this one line. She has this whole list of things she learns from the movies, like that it looks good to wear a raincoat even when it's not raining. She learns and she's fascinated by the whole succession of divas that goes from, you know, Medea to Joan of Arc. To I love her lists when she's in there. The lists are great. Yeah. Sarah Bernhardt, um, Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, Maria Callas. And she, at least in the United States, and I don't know here, but for Americans... She's the successor to that because the different selves that she inhabits, she, she, she inhabits really convincingly. But at the same time, there is this girl who's insecure and who, you know, so that previous self always seems to be very present. And as she gets older and sicker and physically weaker, she gets more and more girlish, more and more childish. Mm -hmm. Um, because she didn't have a childhood. And at the end of her life, um, that Sue is what she calls mm, her. Mm. She says, call her Sue. Sue sort of comes back to the forefront. I find those passages in the diaries that you quote amazingly moving, where she's sort of keeping her at bay, saying, don't, don't sort of let Sue enter into this. 
she's really, you know, her girlfriend, Harriet, um, who just died a couple of weeks ago, who was like 95. Um, Harriet said, you know, her whole life was about killing that child she was. She and was how much always, did you trust Harriet? I just, I felt like the quotes from Harriet, I didn't quite trust somehow. Harriet was, I mean, I'm so glad you're asking me that because Harriet was a handful. I mean, Harriet was, <laughs> if you've ever heard a 90-year-old woman who was deaf. So for anyone uh, just, who hasn't read it, just oh, yeah, Harriet was me, like the first Harriet was her deaf. first girlfriend um, that she met when she was like 16 in California. By the time I met Harriet, she was 90 and she was deaf and all she talked about was sex. And because she was deaf, she was screaming in these restaurants. And there was this one time when she said to me, um, they were in Germany. But I mean, I'm not even going to shout as loud as she would, but she, even though I have a microphone, she's like, and I ha it was, oh, yeah. And I had a, gotten a venereal disease from my boyfriend. And, and like the whole restaurant was looking. And she goes into this. I was just like. I mean, I, I feel the pain and horror to this moment. She says, um, she goes to the doctor to get something for whatever she has. And, um, and she sees, it was right after the war, and she sees this picture of him in a Wehrmacht uniform. So, you know, a little cringe. But then, and then, as loud as you can, she says, So I said, I'm not having my gonorrhea treated by a fucking Nazi. <laughs> like... I just, I've never wanted to die more. The entire restaurant, and I was like, I was like, I'm not related to her. Like, I don't know this person. It was just like so horrifying. Harriet was a fabulist. Because I didn't really like her kind of Susan was, was terrible mean. in bed stuff. Like, it just felt like it was the kind of thing that you might All she talked about was sex. And I think that she was, one of the things about sex that is interesting in this book is that I think there are people who are good at sex and not good at sex, people who are sort of talented in it. And Susan was always trying to be better at sex. Well, you think she, that. She talked about it. Right. She writes in her journals. Yeah. Um, you know, she writes all this stuff about orgasm and stuff. And I think Harriet, I think her thing was sex. Right. I, I mean, I think maybe she wasn't. Yeah, no, I got that impression from the interviews. She was aggressively, but even when she was 90, it was yeah. intense to be sitting there and she was shouting. I mean. It was horrible. I'm sorry to share this with you. But like, it was like, I'm so embarrassed. It was just terrible. You're right. I know. I mean, she was. Yeah, but, you know, I just but, felt like, I, we, you know, we can equally trust the diaries telling. No, I think that 90% of, of Harriet was on the cutting room floor. But the stuff yeah. that she, um, I think that when you are getting to know someone, including the people you're interviewing, you trust, you get to know what fits and what doesn't mm -hmm. fit. Um, and Sontag was so relentlessly mythologized that you get to know, and it, go, it works on the other side too, the people who pretend like they were her best friend, and you're like, interesting, like you've never come up anywhere else. Like I think you're probably trying to push yourself forward in a certain way. But isn't that partly just that she gave everyone the impression they were? Yeah, but also people thought there was a lot of cultural capital to be derived from being best friends with Susan Sontag. And you could definitely feel that after a while. You could right. recognize the people who were yeah. definitely trying to make themselves sound but more important. also that she sort of played with that by, by kind of giving it as a favor for a Well, she too. did, yeah. And, 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 and that, but that's a little different. I mean, when she did that, that's a different story because that story often ends badly. Right. And so when people tell it, they say, I thought she was my best friend. And then, you know, um, especially the older Sontag at the end of her life could be quite relentless about excluding people. And did you worry about bringing out that sort of side of her that, I mean, the, I think one review described it as monstrousness. Did you, did, did you worry about that? Or you feel like yeah. we can sort of cope with it? I don't mind it because I'm a writer and I think it's fascinating to see this larger than life figure who becomes more and more outrageous as she gets older and she becomes more and more of a diva and she becomes more and more famous and she starts acting out in certain ways that I think have to do with her this childishness coming up again. Um, it's fascinating to write about. The thing about it is that you want to write about it in a way that doesn't make the reader not like her or lose respect for mm -hmm. her. And you want, and that can be hard. And how do you think one does that? That's a good question. I think you have to sort of bring the reader along and sort of understand why it happens. I mean, Sontag, um, you know, she was a handful. There's no question. Um, she also was somebody who was brutally ill for a lot of her life, um, had several experiences of almost dying, um, 
who was treated horribly by everyone she tried to love. Um, I mean, I almost tear up thinking about it. Like she had a really hard time and the facade that she creates of this diva of this powerful woman of this, like the woman who knows everything and goes everywhere and, and does everything was a protection for this very sad person. And I think if you read the book, you see why mm. she's sad. Mm. So I, it's part of the empathy that I try to not only conserve in myself, but also communicate because I think that she was brutally judged by people. Mm. Also, I think self-awareness always, certainly for me, helps. And I think you brought out very well that she was aware of, of the monstrosity and it was a sort of something she reckoned with, she performed and she reckoned with, I suppose. Well, when, from the time she's very young, she's always exhorting herself to be better in certain ways. Um, and one of the things that she's always trying to be better at is being honest. And, um, and she knows that she has a tendency to grandiosity and to lying and to things like this. And it's, um, I find that is a kind of anchor. When you see the journals, you see this anchor of who she is and who she's wanting to be. And I think we all, when we're honest with ourselves, we have, we are aware of our defects and shortcomings and we try to correct them. I mean, I think now that I'm, you know, halfway down the path of life, I realize, I think we all realize like it's a lot easier to know what you're doing wrong than it is to correct yourself. I will walk out of this event tonight and I will think of things that I said that sounded stupid or wrong. I will think of things I should have said and I didn't because I forgot. I mean, it's every, if you're aware of yourself, you're always aware of how you're falling short. But I think what the story of a life and including a writer's life is the distance between what you're trying to be. So she's trying to be um, Thomas Mann or somebody or, or, you know, Marie Curie, who's her great female role model. Um, and she didn't become them. She became Susan Sontag. She became this other person. And, you know, I absolutely, um, I mean, we should all hope to achieve as much as she did. Yeah. So let's just talk um, before we sort of end it about the achievements, Wh mm. which are your favorite works and what do you think we should be reading? Would, would uh, sort of after your seven years with her? Um, my favorite, still, my, my, the thing that gets me the most excited about her is still on photography. Um, because I think that it's so funny and it's so light in a certain way. And it's also so dark. And every time she gets you going along one path, she kind of gets out this dagger and just like <laughs> slices. And, and, and she's so good at marshalling quotes and evidence that are just little, bits of, 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 of proof. And that book, what I love about it too, it's so much like her mm -hmm. because people loved it or they hated it. And they thought that photographers hated it. A lot of photographers did at the time. Um, now we're 50 years on, I'm 40 years beyond that book. And it's still the book that photographers and photography critics respond to. So even if they're objecting to it or they're questioning it, they're still, it's still the thing. And you can never really look at the world again in the same way, I think, after you've read on photography. And the fiction, do you sort of race it up there with the, with the nonfiction? Well, that's a great question because I can go on about that. I, want, I know we're kind of trying to wrap it up here a little bit, so I won't overdo it. But like, I actually like some of the fiction. Mm. I think some of the fiction is really good. And I think that um, there's a real, I got really sick of people. Yeah, no, I think it's really good. To I defend. got annoyed with it. Everyone's like, well, of course her essays were great and her fiction was terrible. And I it really, I got really defensive. I was like, have you read this and that? And, uh, you know, and, and of course they hadn't because they had, it's a stereotype about her. And it's a way of, I think, cutting this person down to size because she was really, really intimidating and people wanted to sort of feel like they could take a piss because she was this mm. um, intimidating figure. And I think that when you, and, and on the other hand, a lot of the essays aren't that good. Mm. And a lot of the fiction mm -hmm. is good. And which is your favorite novel? Uh, Volcano Lover. Uh -huh. I love The Volcano Lover. Yeah, um, no, it's really great. Yeah. And, um, and your favorite story? Um, I think maybe Project for a Trip to China. Okay. Which we were just talking downstairs about Sheila Hetty, a friend of ours, a friend of mine in Canada, um, a writer who has this way of just writing anything she wants and then bringing it down and bringing it down and bringing it down. And Sontag does the same thing. If you see the journals, she writes this immense amount of stuff and she just 
tosses it all, and she ends up with this core. And sometimes it's just a list. And I think those are, um, I think those are really effective stories. And I really like. I don't know. I think I think the mixture of 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 stuff that's good and stuff that's bad. It, we all have it. I mean, especially writers, um, but I think everybody. And I don't. I, I like not having to have a final call on it. Mm. You know. I think that she was very aware of the mixture of light and dark. And the sense of process that's just yes. constantly. We all know that's how it works. And, and we yeah. know that we fuck it up sometimes, you know? I mean, it happens. And I think that the person who is the admirable writer and the writer that we remember and talk about is the one who keeps going. Because it's hard. It's and hard to really keep going. Did. She really did. She kept the blinders on and she kept going and it was really hard for her. And, and I if just, she'd had the chance to keep going, like, what would she be doing now? What would she be telling us? <laughs> So she would be 86 now? Yeah. Wow. Um, well, Doris Lessing, how old was she? She was 91 or something when she died? Uh, older. Or so even more. Kind of, well, yeah. On Sorry. But yeah. But um, <laughs> well, I think she would have, um, I think she would have been an indispensable guide to where we are now. We as Americans, we as British people and you know, people living in this world where we had a lot of certainties that we didn't really think about. Like that we lived in political democracies. We sort of thought that was going to last a little longer <laughs> than it seems to have. Um, and I think she would be a guide. And, and people miss her. People mm -hmm. say it all the time. Like, what would Susan Sontag have said about Instagram? And I think, actually, she already covered that. Just, <laughs> like, just text me, and I'll tell you where she writes about what you need to think about I mean, that. that's sort of what's great, is that actually she has it's told totally us everything there. about that. It's totally there. She's told us about the idea of Europe. She's told us about, like... All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think the real works that are important, the real, uh, the works of writers that are important, it's not that they're always right. It's that they're always relevant. And that's two very different things. Um, so we're going to hand over for questions, but I just wanted to ask you to, um, read a couple of paragraphs just so we get a sense of the kind of texture of the book from where you kind of tell us, I guess, why she matters. Yeah. Um, so I say, Again, I said it, it doesn't matter as much that she was right as well as wrong and she was this and well as that. I said what mattered about Susan Sontag was what she symbolized. To those inspired by the image of Sontag calmly fighting, fighting cancer, it was not so important that the real Susan had, like anyone else, been terrified. To those carrying posters of Sontag at protest marches, it hardly mattered that her own fights against injustice had been marred by hesitations. She showed how to remain anchored in the achievements of the past while embracing her own century. She demonstrated endless admiration for art and beauty and endless contempt for intellectual and spiritual vulgarity. She impressed generations of women as a thinker unafraid of men and unaware she ought to be. She stood for self-improvement, for making oneself into something greater than what one was expected to be. She symbolized the writer who, raged, who ranged widely without falling into either over-specialization or dilettantism. She represented the hope for a tolerant and diverse America that would engage with other nations without chauvinism. She stood for the social role of the artist and showed how the artist might resist political tyranny. And she held out hope for the permanence of culture in a world besieged by the indifferent and the cruel. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank okay, you. Do we clap at this point? Yeah. Clap. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now we are open to you and we have a microphone. Microphone. Do we have any questions? Hi, um, you said that you were asked to write the biography. I wondered if there was anything that was off limits. Was there any, you know, did, did the family have any kind of control over it? Was there any friction? Uh, and secondly, your first biography about Clarice Spector was written once she had long passed away, whereas the Sontag biography, a lot of her contemporaries were still alive. Yeah. Can you compare the two processes? Sure. Um, well, the first part, no. I had an agreement that was quite good um, with uh, Sontag's son and with her estate that I would be allowed to do all this stuff. And, and really, you know, having done a previous biography, I knew that I needed that because biographies always bring up issues. Um, and it's never, I was telling Laura downstairs, it's very rarely the stuff you think it's going to be. Um, you know, it's not the sex stuff or the money stuff or the sort of, it, it can be very trivial things. Clarice's son objected very violently to a description of her clothes in the 1970s. And I thought that, you know, there's like rape and mayhem and murder and, you know, and okay, you know, um, you never know what people are going to object to. So I, I embarked on this one knowing that I was safe in that respect. Um, Clarice actually died very young. She was only 56. And so even though I started that book 30 years, 30 years after her death, um, or even less actually, um, actually quite a lot of her circle were still alive. Um, that's funny because that book is now 10 years old. So um, quite a lot of the people I spoke to for that have since died. Um, but I guess the difference is that I'm American working in my own culture with its ideas that people have about it, um, including Brazilians have about America and about English and about the possibility for bringing a famous Brazilian into English. Um, and that was, people were excited about that. It was actually the first time, supposedly, um, someone told me this after I did it. The first time there'd ever been an English biography of a Brazilian writer, which is kind of shocking, but then mm -hmm. it turned out to be true. Um, and with Susan, I was writing in my own backyard. And that's really different. You know, it's, it's a very different feeling to be um, engaged with people that, that you know. And even if I didn't know them personally, I knew who they were. You know, with Clarice, I had to learn everybody. I didn't know even who the president was, you know, in 1961. I mean, you know, you learn all that when you're doing these, these works. Um, but I'm very glad I had that experience under my belt because doing a biography is, um, it's, it's a tough thing. Um, even infrastructurally, if that's a word. Structurally is a word. So infrastructurally, okay, we're going to just go with it. Um, there's a lot that has to happen. There's a lot of hotels that need to be reserved. There's a lot of emails that need to be sent. There's a lot of ways that you need to find that lady in Banja Luka in Bosnia that you don't really know when you first start out. So I think that having that experience um, just as a researcher is, is good. But it's fun. I mean, it's a fun it's a fun job. <laughs> See the world. Write a biography. Any more questions? Maybe this is vulgar, but how did you pay for it then? Um, um, I love a vulgar question. Um, <laughs> you're so shocking. Um, well, um, so I had an advance that was um, substantial, I thought, and turned out to not be so substantial because seven years of work is... I mean, even if you're good at budgeting and you're very calculating and numbersy, which I am not at all, um, seven years is a long time and a lot of stuff can happen financially. You know, you know, you, I had to replace my roof. And, I mean, stuff like that happens. And um, so how did I finance it? Um, on a hope and a prayer. Ultimately, you know, you figure it out and you just, um, you sleep on people's couches, you know. It's kind of, it's actually not as, um, that's actually the hardest part, I would say, for me. It was, because it was just so unpredictable. And, you know, somebody calls you, like Susan's sister calls you, it's like, you have to come to Maui. And it's like, oh, okay, like Google that. It's like $900 for like 
the weekend fare from Los Angeles. You know, Hawaii is far. <laughs> Not to shock anyone, but um, it's even far from California. It's five hours from California, um, which is as far as it is from here to uh, Damascus or something. So, um, and that is, it adds up. More questions? Could I ask for your, your take on when she staged Godot in Sarajevo in particular, what do you think was her motivation for doing that? Um, I love that question because I have three chapters about it in the book. <laughs> I absolutely was amazed that nobody had ever actually reported that story and nobody had really gone there and interviewed the people. Quite a lot of those people are dead actually because it was, um, well, because it was, Bosnia. None of them got actually killed in the war, but but a lot of the actors were older. Um, she goes there at a, in 1992 in a time of war, which amazingly, I don't know if how old the people are you teach, but when I was at UCLA where her archive is, I was teaching a little seminar about Brazilian literature. And um, the graduate students who were like in their 20s had never heard of the Bosnian War. Mm. So... I mean, I couldn't believe it, but then I was like, well, they weren't born. You know, they really, uh, it's not really their fault, so I'm going to tell them about it. And um, tell them about how all of Europe and America sat and watched on CNN how a totally harmless mid-sized European city was blown to smithereens and how people an hour away from Venice were rounded up based on their ethnicity and their religion and put into concentration camps on television and how nobody did anything about it. Um, it's just still, even to describe it that way, that is literally what happened. Um, she went there. She could have very easily been killed as tens of thousands of people were um, to put on a play. And it was waiting for Godot, ultimately. Um, and she was absolutely loved for it in a way that I always, I'm glad for the opportunity to talk about it because people think of Sontag as an elite figure. They think of her as like the woman who was at the weird modern dance performance and, you know, somewhere posh in Switzerland or something. They don't realize that what she meant to people. And I was with a translator in a um, marketplace under a flyover in Sarajevo, which is where the marketplaces still are because those were the only safe places that you could go and buy your vegetables and not get murdered under these big cement things. And I said to someone, I said to the translator, like, ask this lady here selling meat. She was just this very normal um, Bosnian woman. Ask her if she knows who Susan Sontag is. And the woman was completely offended that I would even right. dare think she didn't know who Susan Sontag was. And she gave me this whole speech about how much she meant to them and how she had come when nobody had come and everybody was just sitting around acting like we were savages and that we were deserving to be murdered in our own homes and in our streets and little children getting killed in their playgrounds and, um, and how they'll never forget her and they love her so much. And it was really such a touching moment because um, it said to me, I think that's the way Susan would want to be remembered as that figure who stood mm -hmm. for culture and civilization in a world that is barbaric. And um, a few years ago, they actually named this square in front of the National Theater in Sarajevo, Susan Sontag Square. And I was just, um, it's really touching. You know, it's really touching because it's so easy to get bottled, bogged down in all the gossip and all the stuff. That's what I'd like people to take away from it. And also... And there was a documentary made. Yeah, well, um, her girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, Nicole uh, Stéphane, who is a famous French actress, um, she did go there and made a documentary about it. And there was a Bosnian who made have a seen film it? about it. Yeah. Nicole's one? Yeah. Yeah. It's, we should um, be screening it. We should be able to do that. Oh, that's true. That's true. It's actually very hard to find. It really? took me. Yeah. Uh, oh, speaking of people I knew who died, uh, the person who found it for me was Pierre Berger, who was Yves Saint Laurent's uh, partner, um, who's also since died. Um, and he has, you know, he was one of the richest men in France and had this enormous staff of underlings doing his bidding. And it took them a long time to find it. Mm. It was great that you saw it. It was great. It was, um, you know, it was one of those things you thought was lost. Um, and it's still in my computer. So if anyone wants to see it, you know, it's really... Uh, yeah, I think we But there's also some Bosnians filmed it. And, um, and this was a time where there was no electricity also, you have to remember. It wasn't... And there was no internet, no computers. 
and they still manage to make films. So thanks for asking about that. Um, maybe a couple more questions. Yeah, over here. Wasn't it actually her son who began the project in um, Bosnia? Yes. And, and in a way, wasn't she doing to him what her husband had done to her? Like, you never hear about him in that connection, do well, you? Well, yeah. And what, and what kind of a mother was she? I mean, I'm just interested in that relationship. Um, well, so they were, she was 19 when he was born. So they were very close in age. I mean, they were almost the same generation. Um, and she was totally unprepared to be a mother. Um, she had had an abortion before at a time that it was illegal. The anesthesia was that they turned up the radio so that the neighbors wouldn't hear you scream. I mean, this is, again, part of mm. the history of women and, and, and society that I think we need to remember how this was not that long ago. You know, this was in the 1950s in America. Um, this was not Afghanistan, you know. Um, she was totally unprepared to be a mother. She didn't want to be a mother, and she didn't know how to do it. But then he grows up, um, and then they become very close, but they were always, always fighting. And always, she was always trying, he was always trying to get away from her, and she was always figuring out how to get him back. And there's this great line where he, he finally decides what he's going to do, and he's going to join the United States Marines. <laughs> And she said, I'll outflank him. So almost like a military maneuver. You know, she's going to, like, take on the Marines. Um, so he does not actually join the Marines, but he becomes very interested in warfare and human rights and cruelty and these kind of issues. And he goes to Bosnia, and um, he sees what's happening. And he feels this urgent sense of mission. And he comes back to New York, and he tries to recruit people to come, report on it, take photographs. Um, and... He said to me, he's like, you know what? And the only person I convinced was my own mother. <laughs> so she comes along, of course, because it's a way to, like, you know, spend time with him. And, um, and he recognizes that having the most famous intellectual in America speaking for the Bosnian cause was more important than his mommy issues. You know, so he quite heroically, um, you know, let that happen. But it did not improve their relationship because inevitably she wrote about it and she puts on this play and she does all this activism that he that then eclipses him i mean so just to say in his defense a little bit there he did write a book about bosnia called slaughterhouse um and the failure of the west and how all the europeans and the americans just sort of let this happen um the united states navy estimated it would take 48 hours to lift the siege of sarajevo um, and it took like four years. It was by far the longest siege in modern history. It was something like twice the length of the siege of Leningrad. Um, they could have ended it in two days, and they didn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, I still kind of choke up a little bit thinking about it. Because when you go there, have you ever been to Bosnia? I know that she, this is my friend here, and she's a great <laughs> Eastern Europeanist. So she's been around to a lot of these places. But um Bosnia, it is like when you go to the. I flew there from Vienna. You just like Mozart and Sissy and like chocolates with like little Viennese soccer torta and you know, and you get on there in the plane and you go up and you go down and you're in Sarajevo. Mm. It is not far. I mean, I bet Edinburgh is farther from here than 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 Sarajevo is from Vienna. And everybody knew this was happening, and so he wrote a book about that, which is a, an admirable book if anybody's interested. Slaughterhouse. I think we are coming to an end, but maybe just before we do so, um, what's your sense? Do you, have there been successes? Is she a one-off? What's, what's your... Oh, she's a one-off. Yeah. Um, it was always... It's really fascinating. She, when she's a little girl, I have a picture of Marie Curie in the book. Um, another bit of history that I think is good for us to remember is that little girls who are intellectual or who were artistic had no role models. Um, even in the 1960s, Virginia Woolf, our neighbor here, was um, not considered quite a proper writer in English departments in the United States. Um, so you didn't have a um, you didn't have a genealogy that you, as a girl, could fit yourself into. Um, she fixated. There was one exception. That was Madame Curie, who was um, who was the subject of a famous biography by her daughter. And in in a Carolyn Heilbrunn, if there are any people who know. Carolyn Heilbrunn, who wrote a famous book called Writing a Woman's Life, a Woman's Life. 
said that before 1970, Marie Curie was the only woman that a girl could have as a role model, as an intellectual. And, um, and it's funny that she cites all these women who, who, who cite her and that Sontag also, that was who she found. Um, so it was sort of a role that needed to be created. I mean, and, and the, the thing about Sontag that's so fascinating is that she was a great intellectual and a great writer, but she was also a famous person in a way that we were talking about this downstairs. Like in my culture, very different from Britain. Just kidding. Women who wrote essays about Simone Veil and like Georges Bataille do not become famous. <laughs> they just don't. Like you do not get to be on the cover of Vanity Fair if you make avant-garde like weird novels that, you know, I mean, I've seen the sales figures, you know, they sell like 700 copies. And yet Sontag managed to become world famous um, in a culture that was very aggressively anti-intellectual. And, um, and what you see, even when, like, there's a story about Camille Paglia, who, um, um, American writer, who said that in the 60s, Sontag was the only image she had. She was the only role model she had in the 60s of, of, a, of a woman intellectual. And um, even Sontag was in her 30s at the time. And she was already, for people in their 20s, that's who they were looking to. And now I think it's so funny, funny because there's so many women in so many different positions, whether it's writers or academics or, or politicians, that you don't really realize how rare it was. Mm -hmm. And um, the phenomenon of Sontag is something that she, she stepped into that role at a time when it wasn't even a role. There we go. There we go. Thank you very much uh, for a great talk. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.